Open your Bibles, if you can, to John chapter uh, 12. Um, I guess part of me is just anxious to get into uh, this text and to talk to you this morning. Um, We're going to do something a little different. Uh, It's been on my heart. It's been on my mind. It's been on my spirit to, to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in this election process. Um, very rare do I take time, I think I count them on one hand, uh, away from the, um, the actual exposition of Scripture and deal with a topic uh, that is pressing our day and pressing our culture. And um, I want to do that this morning. Uh, but this election is like no other election. And I, what I want to do is I want to take it from the Scripture, look at principles from the Word of God, um, because what I say really doesn't matter. Um, and actually, what anyone says uh, at the end of the day doesn't really matter. What God says will be complete and full and everlasting. So we're going to look at the principles of Scripture. Um, But we're going to take some of that from John 12, and I'll explain as I go. Let me read. I'll dismiss kids, and um, and then we'll go from there, okay? So that's what we're doing. If you're new and your visitors here, we don't normally do this, but we're going to do it today. You're welcome. John chapter 12. Uh, We left off in verse 32. Well, verse 33, so let's do that. John, the gospel according to John, chapter 12, verse 34. John, chapter 12, verse 34. So the crowd answered him. He talked about being lifted up, hoisted up, and drawing all people to himself. He said that in verse 33 on how he was going to die. Verse 34, the crowd said to him, Have we heard, we heard that the law, that the Christ remains forever? How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still, not, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What's that word? Lord, comma, who has believed what we have heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe for again what Isaiah said. He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah, verse 41, said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him for fear of the Pharisees. They did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they, for they, those who could not believe, those who did not believe, for they loved the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. Key verse. We'll deal more next week about that. But may God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So, kids, you're dismissed. The rest of us are in John Chapter 12. So as I said, this election season, unless you've been sleeping and just woke up in three years, has caused a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger, hatred, bitterness, confusion, division. The election is is extremely important in the direction of our country. And I'm sure many of you have your reasons to vote for your candidate. There are many views, many strong opinions, ideologies, uh, uh, policies, foreign and domestic political views, and philosophies on what is right for America. My goal this morning, 
My goal this morning is not to change your opinions or to promote any specific candidate, but to get us, the people of God, to have a kingdom-minded perspective and attitude toward this coming election. Let me say right up front, I love our country. I honor those who fought and have died and continue to fight for our freedoms. It is very possible to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be patriotic. We live in a republic democracy where we elect officials to represent the people and therefore I honor those, and I know many of them, who have served in the public service, devoted their life to public service with integrity for the welfare of other people. There are many. So I want to encourage you this uh, Sunday morning to vote this coming Tuesday. And please remember, if, if, you're, if your conscience, and this is your decision, to, to stay away from the highest office, I just want to plug in and remind you that there are local officials that are running for local positions that are very important as well. In fact, we have two people right here in our congregation running for public office. So please go and vote on Sunday. I want to encourage you to exercise your privilege to vote. With that said, I do believe we need to be reminded that we are living temporarily as citizens of this great land. Ultimately, we are citizens of heaven. Jesus taught us in Mark 12 and Matthew 22 to render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In that day, Caesar's image was on a coin and what Jesus was saying that even though you support, he supported civil duties, you're not to pay ultimate homage, ultimate worship to anyone else because that belongs to God himself. Jesus acknowledges government authority, but he also acknowledges that the ultimate authority is God himself. Give Caesar his due, but not his worship. On the coin, there would be a, there would be a saying, literally saying, Tiberius, king, son of God. And on the other side, on this coin, it was him seated on a throne, uh, high and lifted up as a priest in robes. That was the coin that every Jew held in their hand. And, and Caesar wants ultimate allegiance. And Jesus says, give to Caesar that image that belongs to him, but you were created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, you are to give ultimate allegiance to God himself. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Let their, he says, for... There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul told young Timothy that we are to bring supplications and prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, presidents, and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Remind them, he said to Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. You are wicked, deserving hell, living your life in pure passion of your flesh, and God rescued you, so don't be pointing fingers. That's what he's saying in lieu vernacular. Joseph, Daniel, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, all were blessings to pagan nations until the government 
asks us to do something that God clearly forbids, or the government forbids us to do something God clearly requires, we are to be good citizens. Not because we ultimately fear government, but because we have ultimate reverence to God. As children of God, we are to be subject to governing authorities, yet ultimately in subjection to God. A couple of weeks ago, I read an article by Drew Hunter. He's a pastor and author. He did a, a, one of his claims to fame was a book study he did in the gospel according to Matthew, a great little work study. And he had an article called The Presidential Election and the Kingdom of God. In his article, he addressed how we are to process what's going on in our country as we live as temporary citizens in this kingdom while permanently citizens of the kingdom of God. I thought it was a great read. And as I'm reading this, I'm reminiscing on what God has been showing the congregation here, you and me together as we're studying together the gospel according to John, just thinking through of all the things we've learned and saw in that wonderful gospel. Now, the gospel according to Matthew, as he, as he writes this article, uh, one of the main themes in the gospel according to Matthew is the kingdom of God. But all four accounts of one gospel, his name is Jesus, teaches us about the kingdom of God because it reveals to us the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and his kingdom. So what I'd like to do with our time is look at four implications of being kingdom-minded and how, and how the coming kingdom, with the election in view, how it relates to us as people of God, particularly in John chapter 12. So kingdom-minded people, which we ought to be, clearly from Scripture, how does that, what are those implications for us as we move forward? Not only on Tuesday, but Wednesday. But Wednesday. So before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not something that was never spoken about. It's not just a New Testament teaching, a Jesus-only teaching. In fact, the kingdom of God is rooted in Scripture, in the Old Testament and New Testament, and is grounded in the confidence that there is one God, one eternal God, who revealed himself to us, to the human race, and with a purpose. The kingdom of God goes way back, actually, to creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man and women. Uh, uh, he creates them. He puts them in the paradise. He's with them. He's, he's, uh, he's among them. The original world and, uh, is untainted by sin. There is shalom, what the Jewish people call it. It's, it's peace, innocence, beauty. Not just spiritual peace with God, but psychological, emotional, uh, um, physiological peace. It, it's peace with a purpose. Create what we were created for, the worship of God. Everything in Genesis 1 and 2 was created, was used and devoted to an experience in worship. As God reigned and ruled. But when, I, when, but when Adam and Eve sinned, our first parents sinned, it fractured that shalom. And then God, in the midst of brokenness and sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole world uh, 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 was cursed, and God spoke into that, into that brokenness, into that chaos, into that sinful situation of the fractured shalom. And he spoke to Adam, and he promised that he, one day he would send a son. Genesis 3.15, the first, the first gospel, the proto-evangelum, they call it, the, the gospel where the, the seed will come, the Messiah will come, will, will destroy and, and kill Sin, death, and hell. And then he spoke to Abraham. And throughout the Old Testament, especially through the prophets, he spoke often about this great and glorious day of the coming of the kingdom. We'll, we'll come again. We'll dawn again. It was very much a part of 
the Old Testament. And the Jewish people were looking for those promises. They, the prophets after prophets spoke about the picture of this, of this beautiful coming kingdom of God where God will reign and rule on the earth and he will come and he will put everything right and their hopes and their dreams and their, and their songs and their life and their, their speech all were waiting for this coming reign of God in the new kingdom. It was a huge hope. In fact, Malachi, or in the last book of the Old Testament, speaks about this coming kingdom, this great and glorious day of God. And then when Jesus comes on a scene after 400 years of silence, what's the first thing he says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The king has come. The king has come, and the kingdom of God has been ushered in. The word kingdom, both Hebrew and Greek, is first and foremost, you've heard me say this before, defined as God's sovereign reign and the rule itself. It's all about the king. And what Jesus is saying is is the kingdom is here because the king is here. I'm here. I'm in the midst of you. What's been broken in Genesis has now begun its restoration is here. The fulfillment of the promise to Adam and Abraham is here. Where all the nations of the earth will be blessed is here. It's begun. Jesus is saying, your king, your guide, your provider, the lover of your soul is here. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Secondly, it's about the realm. The kingdom of God is not first and is first and foremost about the, the, the king himself, but it's also about the realm of which God's people enter into. Paul writes about that in Colossians. He says that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, that's that kingdom, and transferred us to the kingdom, the king and kingdom of his son. Colossians 1.13. Romans 4. 17, 14, 17 speak about the kingdom of its present reality. For the kingdom of God, Paul writes, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit right now. But then there's this future restoration that the scripture speaks, this future inheritance of the kingdom of God. The apostle Peter looks to that future day and he says in 2 Peter 1, there will be a rich provision for God's people, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself spoke about it in, the, some of the, uh, in Matthew and some of the other gospel accounts. But in Matthew, he writes, many will come from the east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So the good news of the kingdom and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the true king. And just like that fairy tale where, where the prince rides in on the white horse and, and awakens the princess with a kiss and everything that's been broken is made right and fixed in the end. The kingdom of God. Restoration has begun because the king has come. Everything broken will be fixed. Fear, suffering, tears will be gone. Joy will be permanent. And the human race will be unified. Poverty and and racism and injustice will be over. Hunger, disease, death will be no more. So the Bible, when it speaks of the kingdom of God, the Bible teaches us that the Lord's kingship is both a present reality as he's exercising authority now and a future hope that God will someday will reign in the end and he will come and he will finally put down everything and everyone in opposition to his reign. And we, the people of God, live in that tension between the kingdom coming and the kingdom that is present, the already and the not yet. 
But make no mistake about it. Children of God, make no mistake about it. We are ultimately citizens of heaven. We, like Abraham, by faith, are looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And Paul wrote to the Ephesians church, he said, So then you, in the gospel, in the gospel, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, with King Jesus as our king and his eternal kingdom as our eternal home, what's the implication for that? Let me give you from that article four, four things from that article. Number one, because the kingdom is not yet consummated, our hope is in the world to come. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus, we looked at this last week, said that judgment of this world, now is the judgment of this world, chapter 12, verse 31. Now, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. We learned last week that those who live in this world who who reject Jesus, that includes you and I, pronounce judgment on themselves. Jesus said at the cross, his death was for the purpose, remember? For the purpose of the glory of God and at the cross was by means in which the world would be judged. There was a dividing point that took place at the cross. It says in John 3, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They loved the darkness. The verb condemned is a legal language. It's cosmic courtroom language. Condemnation and judgment of God. We don't like to talk about that. But it says those who believe on the Lord Jesus, he took their judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But those who reject the Son are condemned and stand condemned already. I believe that in this election season, it is good, wise, and helpful to be reminded that not only is this world not our home, but this world is judged condemned and should not be something we are clinging to for dear life we are people who should recognize that the systems philosophies objectives of this world are diabolically opposed to god and therefore god's people the apostle john wrote in first john two fifteen. mark that in your bibles do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, he says, is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Past couple of days, uh, Thursday, Friday, Scott, myself, uh, Pastor Ricky, and um, Perry Jones went up to the Adirondacks for some time of fellowship. We do this every fall. Prayer, seeking the face of God, looking to hear the voice of the true and one and chief shepherd, Jesus, uh, as we love and care and shepherd you, uh, his children. And one day we're up in this mountain, I think it was Sunrise Mountain, absolutely gorgeous, and you could just see the creativity and beauty of God. And as beautiful as it was, and it was beautiful, it is not nearly as beautiful as our maker. 
As lovely it is, it is only a minute speck of the loveliness of God. When John in John chapter, uh, 1 John 2, right here, talks about loving creation or not loving the world, he's not talking about creation in which God said, it is good. The psalmist says the heaven declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We sat out there in the Adirondacks looking at the beauty, handiwork of God Almighty. The Bible does say that this world is under final condemnation, that, that Romans tells us that the world is subject to frustration and someday it will be liberated from decay and bondage. But it's still something we care for and love and see the beauty and majesty of God. What John is talking about in, in, this, in, in 1 John 2 and many times in the gospel according to John, when he used the word world, he's talking about worldliness. He's talking about a systems of beliefs and thoughts and philosophies where you treat this material world as if this is all there is. Loving the world means loving the systems and beliefs that this is all there is. It's the same system and beliefs that that are opposed to God, dominated by Satan as the ruler of the prince of the air. So in one sense, we are to love the world and care for its physicalness. We are loved to people in the world, but we are to hate the system that tells us that this is it. This is all there is. He says, the world is dominated, John says, by lust of the flesh, this over-desire, epithumia, this over-desire of physical yearnings. The eyes are a lust of the eyes, not just seeing uh, uh, beauty and, and maybe other people, but it's, it's that, I want that. It's what commercials are all about, right? This is what you can have. And then he says, the pride of life, bios is the word. In other words, I got all this on my own. Look how well I did. Nebuchadnezzar did that. didn't go all very well for him. Is it a sin to work hard and have a good job, make money? No. Is it, a sin? it is a sin, though, to take credit for everything that you do as if you're boasting in of yourself. So does that mean that John, in the gospel and in 1 John, that everything in the world, every system in the world, every thought in the world is evil? Absolutely not. Does that mean we should not stand against evil and promote good? We absolutely should. In fact, the church, in part, is to be light and salt to the world as we influence it through the gospel for the good of people. Yet I'm afraid that too many of us in this election season, and I speak to myself as well, have placed our ultimate trust and our ultimate hope in this world. We act as if this is our home, and and we're shocked that the world's systems are actually opposed to God. Many of us are sad, and rightfully so, as we watch people talk about the goodness of God or the things that God says is good and right, and they mention it as if it is evil or the other way around. But let's not, let, let's not make believe that our sin is not part of the problem. <laughs> and let's not be shocked as, as the world acts in, in brokenness and in twisted nature. Now, don't get me wrong. This world is not our home. We are called to repent for our own sins, but yet we are still called to be light and salt. We are still called to humbly reflect the truth according to Scripture. We don't escape culture. We don't emulate culture. We are called to engage culture for the cause of the gospel. But sometimes, sometimes, we are more passionate about this world and not the next. And when we do, we find ourselves desperately fearful hateful, bitter on what's going on. Here's a test. Jesus said, 
what comes out of the mouth. And I will add, what comes out of Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Ouch. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, false witness, slander, false witness, slander. Want me to say it again? Ask yourself, am I, am I so passionate as what others see my passion is of this world that is passing away or is it the world to come? Nothing wrong with loving our country, but let's keep that love in check. It must be clear to everyone that we do not worship America. We do not worship freedoms. We do not worship the rights in which we have. They're good, but we don't worship. I think it was Ligon Duncan. I I love Dr. Ligon Duncan who said, In times when Christians were not persecuted, they were very often tempted to over-identify with their earthly nation and its aspirations and maybe even be blind to its faults. In times of persecution, we may be tempted to have a negative view of the role, of our role as salt and light in the world, end quote. In the end, we are not ultimately waiting for a political ideology, a political savior, or even a supreme court. What we are ultimately waiting for in the words of Jesus that he will appear in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. This kingdom is not yet consummated. Our hope is in the world to come. Number two. Because the kingdom has dawned, we can display its beauty. Jesus, the king of his kingdom, makes his rule visible as we, his people, live life. The church is the sign of the kingdom, a reflection of Christ's rule and a pointer, it should be, to the coming consummation. The church is not the kingdom. God creates the kingdom, and he works through the church, though. As we live out life in community to reflect his glory, his beauty, Jesus ushers in this radical, and sometimes I think we miss this, this radical different kingdom because he's a radically different king. Our world is all about getting power and success and comfort and recognition. The kingdoms of this world will never change, only the players will. Yet Matthew tells us, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 what his kingdom is about. The poverty of spirit, gentleness, mercy, kindness, purity of heart and peacemaking, salt and light to the world. The church, not a geopolitical nation, is the place where new creational beauty is already on display through the reigning ruling of Christ and his church. We should foster a bright and beautiful counterculture of life and peace in our church as we live life together, as we live life together shining light into darkness. People of God care about this election, I do, because we are called to love our neighbors. We inspect We scrutinize party platforms, policies, and people because how they affect real-life people. We love our neighbors enough to serve them in public office, maybe speak love to them in our communities, and participate in the process, not just on Tuesday. 
And sometimes shining light exposes darkness. And that may bring opposition. No government, no government, no laws, no courts will determine what God has already clearly declared to be true. The murdering of unborn children does not make it right because of our policies say so. The government will not tell us what the institution of marriage is. God has spoken. No matter how many different genders this judged world will fabricate, God created us in his image and likeness, male and female. We can discuss possibilities of unemployment, restoring the economy, look at principles of that, how to interpret the Constitution, but we will not agree with with the world concerning what God has plainly revealed to us by his word. But we must be careful. Although Christians are called to be peaceful and prophetic witnesses for Christ's glory in this world, in our culture, we know that Jesus publicly confronted hypocrisy of the leaders of that day who failed to see their own sin. Yet we must remember that all that God does, including the cross, finds his ultimate purpose in his glory, his incalculable worth, the beauty and worth and value of God. We read earlier in John 12 that they didn't want to believe because they cared for their own glory, not the glory of God. The Bible tells us that we are created for his glory. John 12, 23, Jesus says the hour has come. We talked about that last week. Divine clock is set in motion, the Son of Man to be glorified. John says in Oh, let me go back. John said in, in chapter uh, 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. Can we go back one? Yeah. John Piper writes this. He says, don't miss the emphasis in those verses. Don't miss the emphasis, emphasis on God's own commitment to glorify God. The text doesn't say that Jesus just prayed for God to glorify God. It also tells us that God himself says, I have and I will. The deepest reason why we live for the glory of God is because God lives for the glory of God. Because God lives for the glory of God. We are passionate about God's glory because God is passionate about God's glory, end quote. We're told over and over in Scripture that we do everything to the glory of God. That's the mirroring and the uh, declaring and demonstrating and reflecting the beauty of God to the world. Because the kingdom is dawned, we can display its beauty. 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to him, you is plural, the church. As you all, the church, come to him, a living stone rejected by men, in the sight of God chosen and precious, you plural, the church, yourselves like living stones, plural, are being built up into a spiritual house where the Shekinah glory comes. That's, what, that's the, the terminology Peter is using. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. You, verse 6, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Look, that you may proclaim the excellencies or the beauty of him who called you out of that darkness and that kingdom into his marvelous light. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that's us, and exiles, it's not our home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's what John calls loving the world. It wages war against your soul. Keep your conduct, your life, your, your, your loving and caring other people among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and what? Glorify God. Listen, a people, a church who loves the glory of God, 
in pursuit of the glory of God, are ultimately passionate about the glory of God, will produce works that point to the glory of God. They will see by our actions, and they will witness God's beauty, God's glory, just like a good tree bears good fruit. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light so shine, you know the verse, before men that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What are the good works? Well, Jesus spills it out, spells it out for us. In, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, on what kingdom kids look like, kingdom actions look like, empowered by King Jesus. And Matthew 5, I think sums up a lot of it when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let your light shine means love your friends, love your enemies. Your heart's been changed. Your heart's been secured and satisfied by the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians. And we're displaying that beauty. We're displaying the wonders of God. So although there are many things we can do as children of God to display his beauty under the rule and reign and kingship of Jesus, I just want to point one today. Love. Love. You can speak the truth in love, but love. I mean, there's grace, there's righteousness uh, with respect, there's honor of the king. I mean, there's a lot of things we could do, but love. Because the kingdom has dawned, King Jesus is here among us in the church, we can display its beauty. Number three, because Jesus is our king, we rest in his sovereign rule. (laughs) You remember back in chapter six, Jesus' Passover season, the Passover is when the Jewish people remembered the, and celebrated redemption and deliverance by the power of God, the, the, the mighty acts of God through the servant Moses. And Jesus goes up to this mountain in a Moses-like way, and he feeds up to 15,000 people with bread from heaven. And immediately it says they perceived that, that Jesus perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, that long-awaited Messiah, king, is coming. Look, we got Moses to deliver us here. Let's make him king. But Jesus said, this, my kingdom is not of this world. Someday he will come and usher, into a new, usher, usher in the new kingdom. But first, he is the king to be crucified. John 12 again, verses 12 through 15. L- look at that with me. John 12 12 through 15, Jesus comes walking, remember, riding a donkey, not a war horse. Everybody expected, like, you want us to get a ride into Jerusalem? Cool, let's get the biggest horse we can. Let's go in there and kick some butt. And he's like, no, get a donkey. Really? We need to speak to your campaign manager. (laughs) The crucified and risen king will come back again. But between his two advents, the coming on a donkey in peace to give up his life, and the time in which he will come and break in, it still says, the scripture still tells us that this crucified Christ is the risen Lord and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. Jesus is our Savior, but he's also the king of the cosmos, which means every authority is subjected to him. Now, we're going to look at this more next week, but just look with me in chapter 12 again. John explains why the people did not believe. Verse uh, 36, Jesus said these things. He departed and hid himself. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs, therefore they did not believe. Verse 37b, you see that? And they could not believe. Look at verse 39. Did not believe, could not believe. And John says, so that the prophecies of Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
Let me just quickly, we're going to talk about this next week. The first prophecy is from Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. And it's, and it's a description of when Jesus would come hundreds of years before he comes, but how he would suffer as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the first prophecy in verse 38. And then in verse 40 is another prophecy that comes from Isaiah 6. Okay? Isaiah 6. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 6, where, where Isaiah, the king, has died, and Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, and, and he sees this glorious being and, and, and the sovereignty and this power of God. And it's from this sovereign throne that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6, he says that they have blinded the eyes and hardened people's hearts in verse 40. Okay, we'll get more to that, but I just want to give you a context. Now look at verse 41. Look at verse 41. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. I, I, listen, Isaiah said these things about the coming of the Messiah because he saw his glory and, and he spoke of him. What is he talking about? How did, how did Isaiah see the glory of Jesus? It's in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saying. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Maybe you know this verse. High and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. For the first time we know now. Isaiah 6 is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ himself. He came in the flesh at a moment in time, but Christ existed as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And Isaiah sees Jesus, glory, seated on a throne, the exalted God himself. Sometimes we get this view that Jesus is, you know, this hippie with a white robe, sandals, a flower in his ear, selling incense at the local, you know, airport. Yet we read Revelation, his eyes are flames of fire as crowns, diadems on his head. Written on him is, is the word of God, clothed and robe dipped in blood. Revelation said, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread, that's Jesus, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his, high, on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's the Messiah. Out of his mouth, he will, he will strike down nations. He will rule them. Family, all nations are under the sovereignty of God. We live in troubled times. We live in scary times. Let me tell you with absolute assurance of the word of God that God is sovereign over every nation. Whether it's North Korea, whether it's Russia, whether it's the United States of America, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Israel, God is sovereign on his throne, the Lord Jesus all authority and power belongs to him. One of the scriptures we need to keep in mind as we go into Tuesday and Wednesday is Daniel 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Whoever is elected has been appointed by God 
Some will say, depending on the person, it's our judgment. And some will say it's our favor, God's favor. Depends on where you stand. But no matter what, we are to be good citizens. We are to be good citizens, to love our enemies, to look to bless the nations, to influence our country for the good and their prosperity. And when we rest in the sovereignty of God, we can sleep well at night. In fact, the sovereignty of God is what brought Job to his knees in worship. When everything was taken from him, he said, I arose. It says he took his robe, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. So when all is said and done, we are to rest in God. Election seasons have fostered fear and hope. Some look to a new Messiah, one who finally will bring prosperity and peace to this world. Candidates are, are to support. I don't have no problem. Uh, make their case. There's only one who will bring universal shalom and peace, and his name is not on the ballot this year. In fact, when he comes, we won't be voting. <laughs> one thing we know, no matter what happens on Tuesday, Family, the preeminency, the permanency, the immovability of the reign and rule of Christ will not be shaken. Number four, and we'll go to communion on this. Because our king gave us a commission, we have work to do. In the Matthew, he gives us our marching orders that are very familiar to us. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, participle, as you are going. Therefore, I make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even after the election. The task of making disciples transcends cultures, nations, ages, and always will be our mission. And we wake up on November 9th, it will still be our mission. We may or may not have confidence in the country's future, but the church of Jesus Christ is secure. I can promise you that. Look at the John 12 again in chapter 12, verse 44. Look at the universal language and Jesus cried out, whosoever believes in me, that's our message. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We need to take responsibility, and I encourage you to vote. Stand up for biblical principles. Love mercy. Do justice like Micah tells us. Pray for the welfare of our country. Serve the poor. Love the marginalized. Do good to your neighbor. Don't forget the mission. As the Father sent me, Jesus said, so I send you. Declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Some governments will promote that, and we ought to pray for that. And we ought to elect people that will help us do that. But that is not the final say. He will build his church, and we are to shine. We not, we are not American gospel people. We are gospel people. The ultimate control is, is in God's hand. We ought to take responsibility, but we are to rest in God. We should not be misleaded to think that we have to, the only way we can live out our faith is if there's no opposition. Or somehow if the right Supreme Court is in place. Other than that, we're doomed. I don't think so. This misleading gospel advocates our final identity as nationalistic and not covenantal. Ultimately, we are children awaiting an eternal kingdom that Christ purchased with his blood. That's what this table is all about. That's what this table is all about. 
John says in chapter 12, again, verse 32 and 33, that when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. We sang about that. All nations, all tongues, all people. The mission of the church will not change. And God is sovereign. And in God's sovereignty and his goodness, he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. The bread represents his body that was broken, his body that was torn, his beard ripped from his face, whipped on his back and nailed to a cross for our sins. The blood, the cup represent the blood of Jesus. Without the, uh, the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The ultimate, the ultimate reality is we need Christ. We should take responsibility, but just let's be kingdom-minded people and remember to love because God loved us in the gospel. God was patient and kind to us in the gospel. God was generous to us in the gospel. Do you know Jesus? Let's confess some sins. What has God spoken to you about today? Just even today. Have you responded? How have you reacted? What your attitude is like? I don't know. God knows. I'm not judging you. Well, let the Spirit of God show you your sin and then repent of that sin. And then celebrate the forgiveness that God offers you. There is no sin that God won't forgive. Amen? Father, thank you for our nation. Thank you for those who serve you. Thank you for the public servants. Thank you for the military. Thank you for the freedoms and the rights we have as Americans. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our nation. We pray for every leader. We pray, Lord, that there will be a turning to you first in the house of God. And then in government and chambers and, and local and, 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 and national political parties and roles, Lord, there'll be a turning to you. Let your people shine lights. Let your people be salt of the earth. Let your people be assured and com- confident in your goodness and your mercy and the mission of declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we gather together, we repent of sin. We thank you for the forgiveness offered to us through the cross. Help us, Lord, to respond in a way that honors you, in a way that displays your beauty in Jesus' name.